It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Detective Sean Souter lived and died a hero. Sean's love showed me life can be good. I was heartbroken losing a partner, losing a friend. My husband did not deserve to die, and no one deserves to get away with this. Police believe the killer is still in Baltimore. From the beginning, we just sensed foul play. We were under the impression that a suspect was on the loose in the community. We were held hostage. You cannot go in there. The Baltimore Police Department is one of the most corrupt police forces in the country. The regular people in Harlem Park had nothing to do with any of this. But the abuse that they were willing to subject them to. They were offering a giant reward and tearing apart the city. For days, this investigation operated on a false assumption. How come this department can't get it right? I don't know why this is happening, but something's happening. New information tonight. Souter was set to testify against eight elite Baltimore officers the next day. And that was... wow. There's a lack of trust in this department and its ability to tell the truth about an investigation. Did someone in this department make sure he was killed? No, I believe that is not possible. If a police officer cannot be treated fairly, imagine how they would treat a person like me. That was a clip from The Slow Hustle, the new documentary on HBO Max premiering December 7th. And we are extremely excited to be joined right now by the director and executive producer of that documentary, Sonia. Sonia, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Very excited. I'm so happy. I was so gripped by this documentary. It was one of those, like, you know, you, you, you get your like cerebral hat on and you sit down getting ready to like learn something about corruption in the police force. And this is going to be important. And then I'm just sitting there with popcorn, like full true crime, like twists and turns. And I have no idea who to believe at any point in this. It is such a wild story. Um, how did you decide that that Detective Souter and what happened to him, like, that this was the story that you needed to tell? Well, you know, um, honestly, there was an executive at HBO who was familiar with my work from Baltimore Rising, who had been following the Gun Trace Task Force. His name is Karrion Tholis. At the time, he was um, at HBO, and he got wind of this case and thought that, you know, perhaps, you know, he just came to me and asked me if he thought that uh, I thought there was a story there. And after the development period, I, uh, you know, it took me some time, but I, I saw that there was not only a story there, you know, because because for me, that's not simply it. It's like, can I bring something authentic? Um, and can I bring some voices into play that can actually elucidate um, some of, you know, the deeper issues in addition to um, the possibility of solving the crime? I mean, ultimately, I think that's that's what that's what this is about. It's the possibility of of ultimately solving the crime. It, it's it was so wild to go on this 
um, on this hunt through the police force and learning about the gun task force and learning about some of the things that the officers were involved in. And then you get to the point, I mean, it's in the trailer where you find out that Detective Souter was supposed to testify against eight crooked cops the day after he was shot. And it becomes absolutely impossible that this community was supposed to believe that it was a random event. What kind of access, like how, how did you get into the newsrooms, into the police departments, into the community like that? It really felt like this was, I mean, you got the entire cast of characters on the record here. How difficult was that? Oh, well, you know, I, I have to say, you know, I, you know, I love Baltimore. As I think a lot of folks know I came there for a job and never left, that seems like. Um, but um, yeah, and I think I've developed relationships over the years. So the former police commissioner was in Baltimore Rising and he happened to catch that case, you know, on his watch and was no longer with the department when we were doing this film. So I believe that gave him latitude to speak. And um, quite frankly, I, you know, I think he needed, you know, he, he, he needed to sort of get some things off his chest, which, you know, we were willing to hear. Um, and then the, um, the, the reporters or folks that I've met throughout, I ran into Justin Finn throughout the years when I was doing, you know, the philanthropic work and also during Baltimore Rising and got wind of the book that he was doing. Um, and so he became an, a person just to talk to. And once I saw that he was willing to let us and the son, you know, he had to get permission from them, you know, to let us follow him that became a way to follow a real investigative reporter who had all the resources um, to, to solve this case. And then the other two journalists, Jane is very well known in Baltimore as a crackerjack investigative journalist. So she gave us some access to, to her work. And Brian is someone I met uh, you know, in the development period um, and just really thought he was very smart. And, um, and just together, those 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 that investigative crew, I thought had the skill that if anybody was going to figure this out, they were going to figure it out, and they could be the most neutral. And then there was D, who had had experiences with um, the police department. I had known D and met him in the years prior during Baltimore Rising. Had been um, very you know impressed by his sharp wit, his story. Um, and also his experiential knowledge, you know, of the department and things that people wouldn't want to even believe. And so I thought, you know, you know, being a true son of Baltimore, so to speak, um, you know, it's really important, you know, for me is, you know, whenever I'm, you know, doing a film, just to make sure we have as authentic voice as possible. You know, Jill's another one, family, you know, is a, a part of a legacy family in Baltimore and, and a legislator for life there, you know. Um, and so, yeah, just to get all those voices in was important. Getting access to the current police department though wasn't so easy because uh -huh. it was a new commissioner um, and he was not willing to give us access. There was, the department was under a consent decree 
um, it was a it was a new day by the time I had come back to Baltimore or, or by the time I had uh, come back to do a to a story. It's not like I ever left, but you know, I brought another story back. Um, so it was the people around the department and the case, the former IAD guy, the internal affairs guy, again, retired. You know, you're talking to folks who are retired. JJ may have had permission from the department. I find it difficult to believe that he would be on air. He would he would be in the in the film without that permission, though I, I was never privy to that information. I think, you know, one of the things that's so important is grounding the story in the investigative journalists and, and the people who, you know, have a stake, um, but don't necessarily have an agenda um, yes. in trying to figure in trying to figure out what happened here, right? And so in so many of these cases, um, even when you watch true crime, sometimes you're like, I don't know, when you when you're talking to the investigator who failed to figure this out, they sometimes <laughs> are the best source you know, in the film, and you're sort of like rolling your eyes through those scenes. Um, what was it um, about the journalists that you did speak to? Because I'm familiar with Dee Watkins. I know Justin Fenton. Um, you right. know, these are folks that you know have credibility in the community. So they're they're not only reporters themselves, but they know people who can then sort of fill out and flesh out so many of the things that you have to figure out as you're 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 trying to solve this. Um, why is that really the place that you started and centered this? as opposed to a million other ways, um, I suppose you could have this Yeah, because, um, well, you have to start with the investigative component, right? And that, like, initially, you know, the very, I think the first thing I thought was, you know, what, you know, where's the investigative component going to come from within me? And if I am not someone who, does that well, who has the skill, who's been trained, you know, who can I get, you know, involved? So it's just, you know, that journalistic, that's credibility. That's my own credibility there at State, right? And then also, I think there was another layer of protection, which is, you know, understanding that, that this is a very complicated case. There were different theories that were coming about. I know my own biases. But at the same time, I don't believe that my biases are based are not based in any kind of fact that wouldn't be relevant to this material. So, you know, there's there's a way of putting together a team that can balance where we can balance each other out. Um, and so having um, that kind of sounding board and then having those people who have the ears they have, they are the ears, you know, and the, and uh, for the people on the street. And so they're gathering all this other intel that's coming through them. So they become channels, not just for their own voices, but for the, their story gatherers themselves. Right. And then they're like sifting, especially like the journalists, they're sifting and sifting and sifting for what seems to be the most neutral type of truth and fact-based information that we can use, you know, and D is bringing perspective, like in a whole nother way. And then to see when the journalists actually start shifting and saying, hey, this stuff doesn't make sense anyway, and then starting to see where the perspectives start to all come together. And I think whether we came to, whether we discovered, or the police discovered the, 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 the actual, you know, solve the crime, I think when you start to see where the investigative reporters and D and everyone else's thoughts start to merge, I think the audience comes up 
with can come up with that with the, the more majority of the artists i think is going to come up with what i believe will be looked at as the most possible you know the the, the likeliest yeah. possibility well, I, what I thought was so fascinating was watching journalists because, you know, we're in this we're in this moment where we're having a reckoning with law enforcement and how regularly law enforcement lies. And that's becoming a thing that is normalized to say and you don't have to do it sotto voce. You can just say police lie about incidents that happen where people get shot. In Baltimore, it's like even worse because that police department is so notoriously corrupt that nobody trusts them. And it was sort of amazing to watch the journalists go through these cop stories. First, you know, a suspect shot Detective Souter and then Detective Souter took that eight seconds to shoot himself real quick with no planning. And like all of these are really difficult things to believe and the journalists clearly don't believe them. Like they're reading it knowing that this particular police department has a massive corruption problem and that they lie. And I found that so refreshing as we watch journalists just sort of accept the credibility of law enforcement, like lock, stock and barrel every time it comes out. Like, does Baltimore really work differently? And is it is it because that police department is so over the top corrupt? You know, I mean, the history, I think, speaks for itself. You know, I, I you know, I, I hesitate to um, speak too, too, too harshly because I hope this, there's a, there's something going on, you know, for the, something new, some, some, something happening for the future. But honestly, the history speaks for itself. I mean, I can't clean it up. You know, I, you see, you see, I'm stuttering. Um, um, but I'm also not, um, I'm not part and parcel of the organization. You know, it's been, it's in the media, you know, it's been documented. I'm interested in what the solution is, quite frankly. Yeah. Well, I think that whether or not it's controversial <laughs> to say like, this police department has a history of corruption or not, like put that aside. I mean, I think the history does speak for itself, which is why this is newsworthy. That's why this is relevant. And it's why this has become a national conversation around policing because Baltimore is an example of a larger systemic issue um, within policing and police departments. They're an example of this right. historically. I mean, that's not, that, that's right. exactly, I think that- Exactly, know, yeah, exactly. And that's what I'm saying, right, exactly. Um, so, you know, they shouldn't get mad. They should wanna to work to improve it. What are some of the things that you've learned in your connection to Baltimore? Is there anything that you um, observed or even in creation of this documentary that, does sound like a solution where like people were down the red track and for whatever reason, because we know how some things go, it didn't work out. I mean, are there good ideas circulating in the ether or even through your work in creating this documentary for how to repair some of that um, history and rebuild the trust between the community and law enforcement? You know, um, <clears throat> I haven't been on the ground in the sort of advocacy, you know, world, you know, um, in a in a minute, I, I mean, I was doing this documentary, which is sort of a different. Um, it's like a different ball of wax. So I'm not as versed in some of the conversation that's going on right now. I mean, I know there's the defund the police and like and 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 um, you know, bring those resources over. You know, reallocate those resources over 
to um, other programming and whatnot. But I don't really think that has anything to do with policing um, myself. I think that's just something that should be done. So I don't think that's an answer to um, to um, how we um, we um, restructure um, protection of the public. See, I don't know if there's sort of a restructuring of, of policing or not. <laughs> I think there may there needs to be sort of new ideas around how we protect ourselves. And I think if we looked at safety and protection and what we as a society need right now and what makes us feel safe and protected, because the police don't, their uniforms, the lights, the, you know, the way, all of that, those symbols are very triggering for everybody right now, no matter who you are, especially for black folks, right? So I think there's sort of an out of the box thinking about protection and safety and how we as a society sort of, re, you know, I, that's why I, I, I'm hesitating using the words restructure, revamp, because I really am thinking about recreation, you know what I mean? Creating something new. So, um, and yeah, that takes more brains than mine, but that's where I'm going, you know, with it. And um, yeah, I'll just keep it right there. It, no, it totally feels like, pro like projects like this could be a part of that recreation. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm always so interested in the, in this moment when like we can, we can see the holes in law enforcement. I'm, I'm not even talking about the systemic racism. I'm talking about the stuff right. that like just falls through the, I mean, social media helped find Gabby Petito. Right. Like the law enforcement officers didn't do that. And there was tons of right. resources and information and spotlight put on that case. But it feels like every few months we're hearing about a documentary or a book or, or a podcast that is reopening a cold case and making people take a second look at it. And in some cases, exonerating people and overturning sentences. Do you feel like the slow hustle could be a part of that canon? Was that sort of in the back of your mind that, that this is maybe a moment to, to get, we can't have justice in this case because the man's dead, but maybe to get some much needed actual answers? You know, that's a really, 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 I, I really love that you, you actually made that statement. You know, it's, this was such a challenging film and there were so many ways to, to end this, to, to sort of, to take this there were there are so many threads but ultimately the theories kind of won out you know you we had to elucidate those theories and sort of the some of all the subtext uh, or you know the the other um sort of social issues that i wanted to sort of connect to the case you know the macrocosmic pieces were sort of getting lost um even the microcosmic like how much um, the case affected the family was such a microcosm of how much you know this case represents what happens with us. But um, yeah, it, it is supposed to, for me in one way, leave the audience in a place where you say, you know, I, I came into this pretty much feeling that there was not going to be, we were not going to find out who, who killed Sean Sude. It was six months in when I picked up the story. And knowing what I know, you know, in my experiences in Baltimore, I just had a strong feeling this was going to end up a mystery. And so where does that leave us? And I felt that it left us having to pick up the pieces and figure this out for ourselves. And there was, you know, a sense um, that I tried to put into this film that even though there is a fruitlessness here in this search, um, 
I hope there you are left with a sense that your sort of frustration around the ineptitude here um, sort of inspires you or moves you further in your thinking of how to evolve this safety and protection you know, conversation into some other structure. I am frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't be pithy. I can't be pithy with these issues. You know, no. I'm doing the best I can. Oh no. Oh Yeah, I hope it's coming through. I mean, just because just because we're you know you're left frustrated doesn't mean it wasn't worthwhile to engage with you know. Oh God. Right. Just because, the layers of yeah. things, like the, the layers that got me to the frustration are just so much deeper and more ingrained and, and worse than I, I think the thing that honestly shocked me the most was the casual disregard that the police displayed for other police officers. Like it was a black police officer whose, whose death is, is being investigated throughout the documentary, but that's not even the only incidents of violence against police or family members of police perpetrated by other police. And I think watching that, it was just like, oh, how do you, how do you even start to unpack this? Like, how do you even start to peel back the layers of this? Did, did you, did you wind up making the documentary that you set out to make or did things, did you learn things that dramatically changed the story you thought you were going to be telling? Wow, boy, you're really sharp. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's a couple of questions. You're just going in there with the scalpel. I um, really like this documentary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, um, did I, did we end up with the film that I wanted to make? Or was there like, I was, did the developments shock you the way they shocked the audience, I guess? Or did you go in kind of knowing how this was going to play out? Well, I would say that the film, after the development period, I was probably, I was about 90% sure that we probably weren't going to come to a conclusion. I could see that there were layers um, here and holes and um, what appeared to be um, duplicitous actions, possibly. Um, and I knew that the police had the system um, on its side. You know, there were certain protections that were in place for the police legislatively. And so I would say in one regard, we did end up with a film that was very close to the one that I had envisioned. Um, I think getting tangled up into three different theories. We, I didn't expect the IRB report to play such a central role in the that one theory, I don't want to reveal it right here. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't think the IRB report was going to play such a central role in nailing that particular theory, and then um, um, the police department sticking to it. Um, and that probably, uh, you know, going back and forth um, and following that sticky wicket, I think impacted uh, how the film turned out. I would have liked to give in a little bit more room to um, the people in the film, like Nicole and the family and the journey they took from patient police family to the family who says this means war. 
It was a hell of a journey. I, I thought their their portrayal was um, just intensely human and something that sort of couldn't be ignored. I hope everybody watches this, The Slow Hustle. It is gripping and enraging and um, ultimately kind of beautiful. Uh, Sonia Son, thank you so much for hanging out with us today and for making this fantastic piece of art. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really enjoy speaking with you. This was great. Love to have you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening.